Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on, once again, Light. Angeline Chase Prefer is the Director of Client Services for Light's Festival Partnerships. Justin Norden has the same role for Light's venue business. I spoke with them separately about where they come from, their career paths, and how they wound up at Light. These conversations affirmed for me that not only are there many ways to make a life in music, but that all of us in this business continue to invent and reinvent the whole thing and ourselves as we go along. I'll look forward to hearing what you get from these discussions. Enjoy. I think we should start at the very, 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 very beginning. <laughs> Where are you from? Where am I from? Um, I was born and raised in a little town called Idlewild, California. Okay. which is the mountains down south. It's about two and a half hours from LA, San Diego, inland, um, right above Palm Springs. It's 3,500 people, tiny little town. I was actually born in Mountain Center, which is the outskirts of Idlewild, population 300. <laughs> but um, yeah, very much a little artsy slash half conservative, half hippie community up in the mountains, mm -hmm. beautiful kind of little island oasis in Southern California that differs from other parts of the vicinity down there, I'd say. How did your people end up there? How did my people end up there? Well, um, mom was raised in San Diego and they used to go up there, her and her family, for mm -hmm. camping excursions and weekends and such. Dad was raised in Ohio, 10 siblings, and two of his older brothers had first kind of made their trek out to California and he was the third one to kind of follow was living in Palm Springs for a while and they ended up up in the mountains. So, oh, okay. All right. It's, and, uh, so you're part, part artsy community, part sort of, uh, what you'd expect from the Republican mindset in that community. Yeah. It's a very odd mixture, kind of an extremes. I feel like there's, um, there's a boarding arts high school there which attracts oh, wow. people from, I think, 30-plus countries all over the world. So it's, it brings in a lot of just obviously talent and different cultural values to the town as a whole. And because of that, there's a lot of local art events, performing arts, visual arts, etc. And on top of that, there's already a community in the town that just exists naturally from people who have kind of lived there for 30, 40 plus years, people tend to end up in that town and they think they're going to stay for a couple of years and all of a sudden, 40 years later, they're still there. It's kind of got that energy vibe to it. But the arts high school definitely has a big impact on that side of it. And then I think the other side is just being in the SoCal vicinity, second homeowners from Palm Springs, San Diego, Orange County kind of has that type of energy as well. So Yeah. And so what were, you, uh, what were you exposed to growing up? Were the arts and was music part of your life? Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, I was kind of, as a kid, born as like, I'm going to be a dancer. I was always big time into the arts. So I grew up doing a lot of musical theater in our elementary uh -huh. school. It was a big deal. Wanted to do all the arts. So I wanted to do photography, wanted to play music, wanted to dance, wanted to act. It was kind of just natural, both from family and from just 
I think the local community and even the elementary school there had a big arts influence. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of stuck with me. Like epitome of the year was the talent show and yeah, again, various plays and options to be involved in extracurriculars. So I, that stuck with me. And then I ended up going to the arts high school as a day student. There was like a small pocket of us who would kind of would like apl apply for various loans and scholarships locally from the community to be able to go and take courses there. Um, so I studied dance there for four years and continued on that path, but oh, that's cool. always with, did you, uh, yeah. did you play an instrument at all? You know, in elementary school, I, I played flute, but that was because my mom had played flute. So we had a flute <laughs> and I was always kind of like, I want to play guitar or I want to play drums. And so when I was 15, my dad handed me down his old guitar, who actually, there's a legacy story behind that guitar. So that was, that became more something I was passionate about, even though it's been more of a hobby than anything beyond that, but mm -hmm. just to pick it up off and on over the years. Do you still have music it? Was always, I do, I do. The great story about that guitar, it was actually my uncle, my dad's older brother, it belonged to his girlfriend back in the 70s. Her name was Cornflower to remember this uh, and when he first ditched Ohio he was the rebel and drove out to California that guitar got left at the house um, so my dad ended up picking it up and learning to play self-taught and then that same guitar got rebuilt multiple times after sitting in pieces in the garage and eventually he gave it to me so it doesn't sound the best but it's got some heartstrings attached to it <laughs> yeah it's got some history wow. yeah <laughs> So you did the performing arts school. You were on sort of the dancer path. Was your mindset at that point like, I'm going to pursue dancing? A hundred percent. Yeah. That was very much kind of my goal. And I was that, I was that kid who was like on the weekends, I would go and take classes like, like day in and day out, live, eat, breathe, sleep, whatever. It was just all about that. So um, very heavily, I think. I went to, I ended up going to performing arts college up in Seattle to Cornish. All right. So same yeah. kind of um, just mentality around eat, breathe, sleep, dance. Um, and I, I did. I lived in LA for a couple of years and danced with a couple of kind of small professional companies in various dance realms, which was great. Um, but always just kind of was a bit of a renegade and had trouble staying in one place. And so got heavily influenced wanting to move around and there was a beauty behind that, but it was also kind of hard to like stay involved in a longer ongoing basis in terms of performance wise and such without yeah. being long-term in one space. So what, um, what was the scene like in and around Cornish? Um, what were the opportunities here? What was Seattle like while you were here? Seattle was great. And I think I, I think I chose that school, even like the dance program was prestigious. There was some other options that I kind of looked at that might have had more prestige as related to the direction I wanted to head at that point in life. But I loved the idea of big city that still had small community within the college because that felt familiar and comfortable for a girl from a small town. Um, and just the fact that it was the great outdoors and so beautiful and able to escape the city and go for hikes and be out in nature. That was very much, that was very important to me. Um, I don't, it was, I think Seattle at the time, I was so invested and involved in the school aspect of it that it was mm -hmm. like, 
was just Capitol Hill. And meanwhile, I was, you know, I'd walk downtown to Pike's Place and I was working at a restaurant down there. Um, but on a broader basis, it's like, God, I'd love to go back and experience it more as an adult, given that obviously the music scene there is huge and, you know, very well known in the industry. And I didn't really get that opportunity. I was 18. So, you know, little bits and pieces, but not at the same level that. That's interesting. So you were, you were really in your world. Yeah, I was very, I was, I was that kid who was carrying like 23 credits and working three part-time jobs. I was a little bit insane. (laughs) (laughs) Good to see nothing. (laughs) Yeah. uh, (laughs) Free time. Who needs that? I don't know. Um, Well, it is interesting about this town that you can drive um, literally like a half hour or 30 miles in any direction and be in a completely different terrain and topography. You have the ocean, you have the mountains, you have the lake. It's really, it really is special in that way. Um, Yeah. It's amazing. Right. I remember just like on, on, I wouldn't say days off, but partial days off or whenever I did have time, it would just like my outlet would be just to go jump on the ferry even over to Bainbridge, just to kind of get out of the city mindset for a minute. And just because it's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, for a few years after school, you were, were you still in the mindset of like, I'm going to pursue this professionally? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I did Cornish for two years and then I did study abroad program in Melbourne in Australia. Oh, wow. And so it was supposed to be a semester I ended up doing a year and then staying another year and dancing kind of locally with the community I'd formed there Um, and then moving back to LA. And I think, yeah, for a couple of years, I was still heavily, um, that was still heavily my focus and my direction, but I always had so many interests and it's kind of that like weigh your priorities, right? I think there's those people who have single point of focus, want to do one thing and they excel at it to a million, you know, having that like one mindset. And I, it's yeah. like I wanted to have that, but I still wanted to do all these things as well. So it was, you know, and as it started to kind of ease out of my life, I still, I still tried to keep it up. I would try to take classes and take the opportunity when it arose to get involved in local performance and teaching kids off and on for little bits and still a part of my life. But more over the years, it obviously kind of started to fall off which was sad in a way, but I think there were so many other great things that excited me that it still not lost entirely. Still something yeah. that I, I go back to from time to time. My perception of dance in particular, um, you know, I think the obvious thing is the athleticism involved, but also that because of that, because it is so physical that there's a big gap, between, like almost like with athletics, there's a big gap between people that are really good but then the people that are like elite and professional right. that there's, you know, there's for, for a lay person, a very good person looks unattainable, but even for a very good person, people at the next level are just next level. And that's yeah. That's a very true statement. I feel like. Yeah. And that next level is that like, I started dancing when I was two and like was already, you know, kind of on this really hard regime per se of, having to live a certain way to fit this certain role and not just yeah. like, you know, on, on a lot of layers. So was your mom a stage mom? Like were you pushed, were you forced and, and molded or was it your, <laughs> you were driven? That was just me. No. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, <laughs> I just, I just liked it a lot. So. 
Yeah. Did you encounter those kind of parents or the kids with those parents? Little bits, but it's not as much as probably the norm who had this kind of a upbringing or story who was involved in this career. I think there, there were, there would be little bits of outside influence and they would mostly come from kids who moved to the mountain, you know, partway through elementary or middle school. And they would kind of come in with different mentality from off the mountain, which is sounds uh, funny, right? We'd always, we had this group, if you did kindergarten through eighth grade at Idlewild Elementary, you were considered a hillbilly and that was something to be proud of. <laughs> there was those kids that would like, I started halfway through kindergarten and I didn't get to be a hillbilly because they weren't there from day one. But, you know, there was definitely kind of the born and raised on the mountain versus like showed up at age 11. Um, yeah. And yeah. That was noticeable because when you live in such a small town, it's those pieces become more apparent. Yeah, especially those like the early years, like you remember, oh, the first time I saw Santa Claus was at the town <laughs> thing, or the first time I did this, like you have those shared experiences that literally everybody in the town relates to knows about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Every place has its hierarchy. When I first moved out to Seattle, it drove me insane about people who were here for like three or four years, five years, looked down on people that just got here. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then, you know, and then there were the people that it's a, you know, it took a long time to meet people who were born and raised here, coming out here and going into a professional environment. You know, most of the people took the job and moved from somewhere else. And so it, it took me literally like the better part of a year or more to really meet more than like onesie twosie people that had been here their whole mm -hmm. lives. And it was usually in the form of like lift drivers and things like that. Like people who right. were trying to hustle to figure out how to stay here because it's gotten so huh. expensive, so hard to live. But yeah, there was always that hierarchy. Like, oh, you're mm. one of the newcomers. I, I've been here since 2010. <laughs> <laughs> so. It's funny how that exists, right? Just in human nature, some kind of like, I was here first type of mentality or I know more than you or just some type of ownership and a weird way yeah there's a lot of that here especially like uh, you mentioned around the music scene there's a there's definitely a group of people that and i think it goes all the way back or at least as far back as i've been able to take it with people i know to like the early mid 80s that's sort of really when the um you know the the, the punk and post-punk and garage scene here all kind of came together into what ultimately turned into the whole grunge thing and the people that were around in like the mid late eighties playing, um, they sort of have a very high degree of, <laughs> of ownership. Um, yeah. And, yeah. But, um, but you know, it's their town, you know, it was their scene. Mm -hmm. And so I, I sort of, I get that. Um, I don't really care, but I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, at what point do you decide or realize that it's not going to happen as a full career? I don't think there was ever a distinguishing moment on that. I think while I was living in LA, I realized it wasn't really where I wanted to be. And at the mm -hmm. time I, I was contemplating going back to Australia, was kind of had a long-term relationship at the time. And that was a factor and also a friend group. And I loved it there. And then just kind of took a turn, went back to the mountain for the summer, and then ended up um, getting heavily into yoga and doing the Bikram yoga training. 
And then that just led me on this path to which I then, between, between that and starting to work more and more within the industry as a contractor, I had these two things that I could travel with. And so my life just evolved into traveling around the States and abroad and teaching yoga in various places for weeks or months at a time and then jumping and working Bonnaroo or outside lands or whatever it might be. So I just became full-on vagabond gypsy for <laughs> most, the better part of a decade. And within that, there was still like that thought of, I'm not going to stop dancing. I'm still going to keep dancing. And there were, there were opportunities here and there over the years, but I think it just kind of slowly started to fade out of my day-to-day and my priorities. Not that there's still kind of like an, oh, I never did that thing. But it's like, well, I did. I did it. I just did it on this scale versus some larger scale. So Yeah. yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the um, sort of the, the life of the itinerant yoga teacher. That's really intriguing <laughs> to me. This, this idea, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know about that world until a bit later in life. And then as... I started to develop practice. I, I, I came into that concept of like the visiting teacher or um, there is this group of people that, that move around. And like, it's a super fascinating world. How do you just, what do you do? You roll into a town and you find the studio and you say, I'm here. Like, how does that work? It's funny because let's see, I, I finished my training in 2009 and at this juncture now, there's all kinds of Facebook groups and various kind of online resources to, to line up kind of shorter, long, longer term gigs. But at that juncture, I was just kind of blind outrage to studios. I remember being at the training, which was a like nine week intensive course. And I remember at one point we'd have, we'd have guest speakers who owned studios or who had kind of had experiences within the yoga world um, or rele- relevant to and I remember a speaker saying, I own the studio in Costa Rica and I really need a teacher. We need teachers actually. And I remember thinking, oh, I'll go to Costa Rica and teach. So I, I reached out there to start with. Um, and then as it turned out, the studio in Costa Rica wasn't really offering daily classes. They couldn't really pay. They didn't have a place for anyone to stay. But they were like, we also have a studio in Buffalo, New York. Come teach for us in Buffalo, New York. And I'm thinking, wait a second, Costa Rica... <laughs> Buffalo. But, but I was like, well, it's an adventure. And it was literally like a studio kind of in an old Victorian house. They turned the bottom level into a studio. And so I was staying upstairs, um, would just get up and teach multiple classes a day, practice a bunch. And it wasn't like it was earning a bunch of money to like, you know, grow my own investment bank or anything, do anything on a broader scale. But it was a way to kind of just experience different places and uh, just keep going. And so that became interesting to me. And then I thought, well, I could probably do this anywhere I wanted to. So I would just start emailing studios and basically saying, I want to come to Raleigh or I want to come to Seattle or wherever that might be. And I would try to line that up with various festival gigs, Nashville. I taught there for a while. Um, and most of the time studio owners were desperate for teachers because tends to be, some people teach full time, but it's, kind of schedules are hit and miss and wanting hmm. to always add more classes. It just felt like there was always an opening for a guest teacher. And wow, so funny. oftentimes they'd have either a room at the studio or I'd get set up with a student and they'd give one of their students a free month of classes for 
housing a guest teacher. So it became very interesting. And then I did that in the States for a while, and then it became like, you do this internationally. So I had the opportunity to go to Thailand and teach for a month, which was amazing. And then um, a couple months in Denmark, Canada and Mexico. It just, it just became a really easy way to, A, not be paying rent, because I was so mobile anyway that it was like, what do I do between festival gig to festival gig? And it was like, well, I'll just go teach yoga. I'll just go teach yoga over here, over there. Um, there was something really exciting and life-changing about it. I think just a lot of different experience, different people, different culture, different ways of doing a similar thing. Um, and it fit more or less into each place I ended up, obviously. Some were great, some were questionable. Um, not, in, <laughs> not in awful ways, just in like, this isn't my space. And I think it just, it was hard to stop. But after a decade, I was probably after a good six or seven years, I was done, but I kept, I kept going for a few more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I understand that. The road takes its, uh, its toll, <laughs> no matter yeah. what you're doing, I would imagine. Yeah. I, I've, yeah. I've talked to people who have done everything from hitchhiking and backpacking on up to staying in the uh, Four Seasons hotels. And uh, I think everybody at some point wants to go home or find Yeah. Home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hundred percent. How did the how did the work with festivals start? So you didn't you didn't you you wound up there, but you didn't take me how you got there. I, I know that just naturally kind of fed into the story. But <laughs> so um, <laughs> my aunt is a part of the original the hog farm, which is now on Black Oak Ranch, a couple hours north of the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So they were all heavily tied to kind of early promoter groups, Bill Graham. Um, best known for running a free kitchen at Woodstock and so heavily tied to the industry. Um, And as a kid, I didn't spend a lot of time on that property, but as a young adult, I started spending more time there and they would run their own events. So it used to be earth dance until earth dance outgrew the property and, or just whatever was happening within that demographic became too much for the land. Um, But also they do a Kate Wolf Memorial Festival. They do a women's herbal symposium, they did Gaia Festival for a couple of years. But anyway, so they were producing a number of smaller music festivals and live events. And I would help run the production office slash ticketing credentials slash this, that, you name it. It was kind of little pieces of everything because there was less defined roles at that time in the smaller production. It was just being a part of it on the back end. And so that grew my interest a lot. And then through the people I met and became closer to out of that, I ended up working credentials first at Coachella and Stagecoach and then at Bonnaroo and so on and so forth. And um, eventually kind of took over managing credentials for Bonnaroo. And that led to a lot more ticketing credential gigs. Prior to that, I was doing kind of vendor support and artist relations. And it was a great experience to have I think I mean, it was great to have different experiences in different departments because it gave me an overall knowledge base as to like how those departments run and act and work in the production world. But because I kind of became that managerial position with credentials for Bonnaroo, that kind of became what I was known for in the industry as a contractor. I was the credentials person. And so I got more and more of those gigs. And then that grew into helping to found um, Pilgrimage Festival five years ago and eventually uh, 
initially it was as credentials and then that became all ticketing and then that became all administrative task. And that was a really great experience also just really getting to see the inside out from end to end year round versus just the month of the event. There's a few things you just mentioned I'd love to unpack if we could. Um, yeah, I just went through a lot. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. That's fine. What does vendor support mean in the context of a festival? What's that job? What's that role? Yeah, so I, I did vendor support for Wanderlust, I want to say in like 2011, somewhere in there. And there was, there was a lead and I was an assistant. So it was basically just making sure that once all the vendors were set up in their various booths, that they all had what they needed lighting like power water etc depending on whether they were food or craft um, just making sure they were kind of taken care of and happy it was a very fun job it was kind of just getting to cruise around the actual festival grounds and just assist where needed and there were certain moments of fire where it was like you know it got overly windy at one point in case like glass so literally fire full of, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> like well not literally but you know like just there were moments of extreme, extreme stress, but for the most part, it was pretty chill vibe versus, you know, the credentials world that I was used to that was, you know, 20 hour days nonstop. Everyone's pinging you constantly because everyone needs all access. That's a fun. Yeah. And so what, and what does it mean to run credentials then? What's the, um, what, what is, what does credentials mean in the context of festival and then, and what are all the demands on the credentials person? Oh God. Yeah. It's, it's my favorite combo. So it's um, <laughs> basically either over the years, I got to be more and more, I got to be more hands-on in designing the access grid. So you're looking at a festival site um, and you have all obviously the public facing parts of it. And then the credentials is like the backside. So you have your, you know, your various staff members slash vendors slash um artists, sponsors, volunteers that need to be able to access different areas within the festival ground. And the goal is always to keep the credential grid as simple as possible while still allowing for all these complex um, passageways that are needed among various groups. Um, So constantly kind of, it's been interesting to see the various grids that have been developed with different festivals and kind of what works well and what doesn't work so well. But so I'd be the back end. So we'd run like a week or two of staff credentials, depending on when the site was quote locked down and when credentials started to come into play in terms of like, you now, you now need a staff or production credential to go to this area of the festival ground. And that usually wouldn't happen until the week of festival, but just I think the the main complexity is in a simplified version, you're thinking, okay, all of your artists need to be able to be on the stage, right? Your AR team who are direct support need to be able to be right there in that area. All of your sound and lighting people need to be able to be in that area. And then you think, what about crew? You have crew one, which is hundreds of bodies who are helping to build, who are helping to do all the rigging, but you don't want all of those hundreds of bodies to be able to have on stage access throughout the festival run. So there becomes this layer of like, how do we get this here without allowing this over here? Um, so just the design is very complex and kind mm-hmm. of mind bending just to figure that out. And then of course, once you've, once you've created it, you've laid it out, the act of going in and having department heads only be able to go in and request credentials for their teams. So you have to enter 
names and credential type, and then having that audited by a higher level of what we would call like approvals, who would then go into said database or whatever this information existed and run through the requests that they were overseeing and approve, deny, or downgrade said requests. So then <laughs> throughout the course of the week-long credentials run where my team's working, literally, and we'd be open 6 a.m. to midnight. And then at midnight, we would close the gate and get into the 300 emails that were, I didn't get the access I needed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but just constant shifts and everyone needs more access than they think they need. And it's like, really, you just need the access you need to do your job. But then it also becomes a hierarchy in that it's like, but I'm the head of this and therefore I need the laminate. But it's like, nobody needs the laminate. Like, and then there's escort privileges and then there's, you know, I know so-and-so. It becomes yeah. a very, it gets kind of gross. It's, it's funny. It's, yeah, I, it, it strikes me that the, um, I was going to ask you of the 300 emails, that, that sort of figurative 300 emails, or maybe literal 300 <laughs> emails, yeah. how many of those are people who were jammed up from being able to do their job versus people who were unhappy with their place in the pecking order? Oh, God. I, I would say more of the latter, really. Yeah, sure. But there's both, and then it would always be like name changes and I had to fire these people on my team because they did this and now I have new people that have to come get new credentials and it's like you know and over the years of working with a similar team you learn who to trust and who to question more <laughs> yeah. but out out the gate it's always a little bit more of a free-for-all trying to kind of establish that hard line between not saying yes to everything because then you have everyone with all access but wanting to ensure people can in fact do their jobs. So. And you mentioned uh, the grid, right? Yeah. So is that, when I hear that, what I'm imagining is there's a few components. One is the physical layout of the site. Like there's common passageways that everybody could get in and out of, but then there's certain maybe on-ramps and off-ramps that you need your credential to access. And then there's a whole other world on the other end of that hallway. So there's, there's the physical space of the festival site or of the bathhouse yeah. area. But then there's also, I would imagine, a matrix or literally a grid of like, this type can go to these areas. And so like, you have to match it all up. Like, what, um, who's, who, who's, who are the people that are dealing with physical layout? production sort of infrastructure and credentialing like how does that how does that come together because in a way they're <laughs> they're until they come together they're very separate things like you're just trying to worry right. about build the optimal festival layout in the piece of real estate we have versus right. people who can go where how does that come together <laughs> uh well I, I mean i get this i can speak the most on pilgrimage since i got to be involved with it from day one and it was like literally coming in and this conversation hadn't really been started yet. So it was really heavily between myself and head of operations talking about what was necessary versus what was feasible. So like what movement paths <laughs> needed to exist between our various kind of credential levels and what we actually had infrastructure to build, um, both with manpower and, you know, fencing, et cetera. Like how is this going to work? How is it going to look? 
is there enough space to build another exit on this side of the artist compound over here? Can we, can we get a security set up here so that this can only be accessed by this type of credential? And then it varies depending on if you have something that's scannable, like RFID, versus something that's just visual check. Um, so it's thinking about all those layers. Um, and I feel like it's never quite perfect. It's constantly something that's being discussed and hopefully improving. And even at the end of kind of putting something together and thinking that you've nailed it, there's always that like, oh, forgot, forgot to think about this. That It's like, now we're going in and saying, we're gonna have add-ons. So yeah, you have a staff credential, but we're gonna add on admin compound access because this person needs to be able to get into the admin compound to drop off, you know, whatever to this trailer. So it would just get incredibly complicated <laughs> yeah. despite trying to constantly simplify yeah one of the big innovate two actually the two big innovations that i saw in credentialing and i guess it's been a minute now but that really seemed to come on board in the 2000s into the early 2010s were the multiple levels of access around artists you mm -hmm. know whether it was like uh entourage friends and family yeah. <laughs> all access like those sort of layers of like how close you could get to the artist versus being in a universe of people associated with the artist and i would imagine there's some intensity around the hierarchy there um yeah and then the other one that was that was interesting to me and it's one that it feels so controversial when you witness it happening is the meal ticket <laughs> oh god yeah like who can eat versus who cannot eat and the thing that always kills me is when access to the the room where the food is is not restricted. So there's people coming in and out, but the restriction happens when you go to grab a plate or put food on your plate. And right. that seems like that's such an awful user experience. It's like, I'm allowed in this room. I'm sitting with other people who are eating. I go to grab a plate and somebody slaps my hand. Like, right. That's, that's just designed to, you know, to bring out the worst in a social creature. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, and then there's the level of like, well, this is staff catering and this is artist catering. But, right. but all of these staff members, because they're still staff members, even if they're wearing an artist wristband, are allowed to eat an artist catering. It's like mind explosion. But, um, and I think the scannable wristband, be it, RFID or QR code helped from what I've seen to kind of solve for some of that because now you have a scan point at the tent entry point, right? So that that's immediately solved for prior to coming in and out like you're saying, but it's still kind of, I think it's still questionable because people don't know. And this is like communication, like especially when it comes to like guest level or, you know, industry level, like who, who has been approved to have meals or not? And does that individual even know if they have meals on their wristband? Like, if it's not a physical ticket, do they know if they go and scan if it's like questionable? Like, not, it's not awkward at all, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the thing with the meal tickets too is like, of all the credential types, it's just, it's, it, again, it's like designed for social awkwardness. But it's also the one that it seems to be like it's the easiest to hustle up. 
<laughs> like, it used to be, you know, you could get a GA ticket on the floor, right? You'd show up at an event, your friend would be working, and it's like, oh, I'll get you a working pass, or I'll get you a GA ticket on the floor. <laughs> and that seems to be, like, the role now of the meal ticket. Like, right. I'm in, but, like, all right, let me, I'll go get you a couple of meal tickets. And all of a sudden, a couple of meal tickets appear. I, it's just, it's such a funny ecosystem um, it, it, to have yeah. exist. And the worst part, I think, is of all of it is – when you work on different events or you work on different tours and your role is truly different. And so, you know, there's something going on. <laughs> you know that the people over there aren't eating the green jello for dessert. Like they've got like cake <laughs> or ice cream or something, or like there's organic food over there and you, and this yeah. side has got like the plate of fried stuff. And it's like, it's very tormenting if you're inclined to even think about it at all. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah. So um, you're not on the road now. So how did that happen? Yeah. So that was, I think there was a number of years where I was kind of ready to transition off the road, but it, it took me some time just because you're so used to a certain way of being and like constantly lining up gigs six months to a year ahead of time and not knowing when to stop or how to stop. But I think it finally got to that place in 2018 where I was like really I was really ready for something. I just didn't know what it was. Um, and I first met the light team working Newport 2017, 2017. And I remember just thinking, this is awesome. Like I've been on the back end of seeing these dilemmas for years and years of, you know, fake tickets, fraud, scalpers. And here's this solution based platform that's going to come in and like help to solve for these issues. And so I was, very intrigued right away. Um, kind of just went to back of mind, but at the, as I moved into 2018, I kind of started to look in to other options in terms of like working something more stable or being more involved in something consistent that would allow me to, I won't say put down roots, but maybe, you know, sign a lease to start with something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I had had a number of conversations. And at the time I was also had taken more of a, full-time gig with pilgrimage as well. I won't say full-time, but it was more than part-time. So I was already looking at dropping a lot of my contract work to do that and maybe do like a couple smaller things. But instead, when I first started having conversations with the light team and applied for a job here and then got a job offer, it was like, I'm going to make it work. I can do two full-time jobs. I was doing 20 contracts, so this is going to be fine. Um, that was a rough year. <laughs> to say the least but I think it felt almost like a like a momentary decision it was like I thought about it for so long and then it was offer was there and it was just it was just time and I just said yes not knowing how it was going to work or how it was going to look and literally I think at the time I was working some events down in Mexico came back had a couple of days to just throw some stuff in a car drive up here found a sublet which I ended up staying in for a year because there wasn't really time to look otherwise. But it was that transition into starting to feel like I had a home base. And yeah. then just this last January, I finally signed a lease and moved into a, a place that is like, like, this is the first time I feel like I've had my space. And that's what, as much as I love the travel and the experience, it's so nice to have my space to be able to yeah. be like, well, this is, this feels like home. This is my stuff. This is, my apartment, I pay rent here. It feels just that comfort. I was ready So you for have that. a lease. Do you have furniture? Have 
I have furniture. You have a storage <laughs> actually, bin? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't. No, I have um, a back in Idlewild. And my, so my mom lives in my grandma's house down there and there's a barn. That barn is full of furniture because my grandparents owned a furniture store for wow. 30, 40 years. So I went back down there in February and loaded up a U-Haul and came back here with some furniture. So it's, it's getting there. Um, oh, that's kind of neat. The walls are still kind of bare, but I, uh, you know, a little bit at a time. Yeah. So you're not living in an empty apartment. You don't necessarily have a storage bin, which is, I think that's a, that's a mark of adulthood. Not having yeah. A storage bin. Um, do you have a car? I do have a car. So like you're, mm. you're like settling into normal life. Yeah. It does feel like that. If that's what this is called. <laughs> <laughs> you, get, you get, you don't get your mail at a PO box. I, that's, that was a big transition. I actually do still get a lot of mail at my PO box. I haven't really changed, updated the address on things. So I, I need to do that at some juncture. Like what, um, what physical mail is useful anyway, these days. Yeah, that's time. true. That's, that's a good filtering <laughs> mechanism. When you're a contractor doing festival support work or tour support work, is everybody an island of one, meaning, you know, you're networking, you're hustling, you're getting gigs, you're getting referred, you're talking to people. This is sort of a, just a nerdy inside baseball question. Like, is there, are you part of an agency? Is somebody placing you? Like, what's the infrastructure around that world? Is everybody on their own, basically? It, it varies a lot. So I was always on my own. I was independent. Um, but there was also you know, times where, well, there's from the promoter side, from the promoter group, there would be entities that would work from that side on the ground running various operations. And there were also certain companies that would come in and kind of offer further resources for like, say, you know, security for one, for some of these larger teams that need tons of bodies and or just certain like trying to think scanning like operations, et cetera. Kind of yeah. Um, and I can think even some other primary ticketing providers out there would kind of would act also as hiring resources sometimes. And they would could like bring in teams from outside of their internal resources to work an onsite operation just through different connections that they had with, with, yeah. Does that kind of answer the question? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Not sure. For sure. One, other, but, one other question I have about something you mentioned earlier was um, when the festival site's being built mm -hmm. and you said it, it switches to lockdown when now like the first phase of credentialing kicks in, mm -hmm. what's the, what are the milestones that trigger that? Like there's an empty field. There's like, what, what order does the infrastructure get built? And then what triggers a lockdown? Yeah. So, I mean, as soon as like we start to have, I mean, there's, there's the public footprint for one. So depending on the actual site, that becomes an issue because as you're bringing in heavy equipment and building stages and it becomes a little bit more dangerous per se, you want to make sure that the public is no longer on the ground so that insurance-wise, et cetera, slash risk-wise, you're at a safer space. And then like more credential lockdown happens closer to the event when we start to see more... I mean, on-site catering for one, more bodies on site as a whole, just so that there's a knowledge base as to like who is who and why they're there. And so it becomes also on top of just an access point, it becomes identifiable that 
the people that you're seeing doing various things are in fact tied to, to the event. So it has to do with say those are the main things, security, footprint versus like kind of what's being built. So usually along with like when the stages start going up, which is usually, believe it or not, closer to the actual event dates, like that's the quicker build, right? It's all the outline like fencing and extended areas that kind of come into play at an earlier basis. So but, is, it, is it fair to say like the first thing that gets locked down is the perimeter? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's also so just like, right. And that'll be like, you know, you have security on the outskirts, um, the perimeter of the ground, just so that there's not tourists driving in trying to see what's going on. You know, it looks <laughs> exciting. Like what's going on in here? So you kind of start with that layer and it'll usually be like a, a, a paper, a paper dashboard pass that literally just says something that's like early access for the vehicle. And that'll often be before any kind of a physical wristband or anything is worn. And that's just for, you know, vehicular access into the site. And then oftentimes there'll be some kind of like Tyvek wristband that, that comes along with that prior to actual credentials being picked up. And then once we go into, quote, lockdown, which in my experience is usually at most a week out, but usually more like four or five days out to what you actually have to have a cloth wristband or whatever laminate, whatever that might be, whatever that actual um, official credential is for the festival. And that's just to keep a tighter control and tighter rein as we get closer to the event dates. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, sometimes like artists coming in and out sometimes at earlier dates to do sound checks, et cetera. So wanting to make sure that everything is in place and running smoothly prior to that. Maybe just for pilgrimage, since that's the one you're most closer to all the different moving parts. How far before and how long after a festival are you working on a festival? That's a great question. That varied a lot. So pilgrimage in year one, I was hired in August about a month out. And it was like, we need to build an access grid. And it was like, huh? So, so anyway, so it was a month out, but that was, that was way late per what it, would have normally been for that role. Um, and then moving forward, like I would start in January for a September event. And over the last year that I worked it, it was year round. So it kind of, that's where it becomes really interesting, but it varied a lot. So running credentials for Bonnaroo, it was usually six months out of the year that I was working on that event. But there were also like, I would work outside lands and it was literally just a couple emails the month prior and then just show up and work. So it really varied depending on the job itself um, and even within the same job sometimes depending on like the credential manager who's actually setting up access and running the whole database versus on-site credential manager that just shows up and runs a program that's already been built by someone else within the promoter group per se. Yeah. So there's large variance. If, a, if a, let's say it's a weekend festival, you know, Friday to Sunday takes place Labor Day weekend. And festival plays. What are people doing October first? Then are they booking next year? Are they doing a postmortem? Like, what's the work eleven months out for a festival? See, that's that was really interesting to get to see because I had an idea of what it looked like, but getting to see, be more involved in it would start with right right away. You're looking at your permit for the next year if the land's not already owned or held, um, and then immediately kind of starting to jump into thinking about marketing, thinking about 
your your revenue for the next upcoming year, whether you're up or down from the prior year, thinking about how that's going to unfold. There's a little bit of a lull. I think there's like a month or two where it's pretty quiet, but there's still correspondence and kind of thought going into it. You're thinking post-mortem a lot, like what worked well, what didn't work, what can we do differently next year? Because after those couple months go by, it starts to just build and grow and become really heavy and quicker than you can think. Obviously, artists, that happens super early. You're locking that in for the following year. And then sponsorship, another oh, big right. one. Like that's, Those dollars that, are committed. That's never forever. ending. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I'd say definitely post-mortem takes like the first, like the first month following is very much cued into like what can be improved and what can be altered to be better what needs to change and what has to change and then just kind of stemming from there but it's a artist sponsorship and then you start to talk about ticketing and when what the on sale should look like right <laughs> yeah okay well um thanks for making time this is all super yeah. interesting i think people are going to really enjoy hearing about all this and yeah, um thank so thank you How is it? Uh, how has it been in Sacramento? I guess the the first few days after George Floyd's death was was really rough for kind of everyone. Uh, Sacramento is such a hub of um, kind of different. You get a, a lot of people from the Bay, and you get a lot of people from the hills, you know, and you put them in one spot, and uh, there's a lot of differing opinions and a lot of, um, you know differing thoughts, I guess you could say. And mm -hmm. it seemed like most of the city is in agreement, at least that, you know, what happened is horrible. Things need to change. It was particularly violent the first couple of days, you know, a lot of destruction, buildings, you know, getting looted and built and burning and, you know, things like that. Um, and uh, confrontations with police and, and National Guard and all that kind of stuff. In Sacramento, we had, we had a very I, th I think it's a really cool thing that happened. After a couple of days of, you know, a lot of confrontation, one of the people that stood up out of, out of all of the conflict and really gave a voice for everyone and kind of articulated what everyone is thinking was the brother of a man who was killed by a cop uh, in 2017, I believe it was, in Sacramento. And he was notoriously vocal um, against cops right after it happened, but it wasn't getting heard. And now um, I think it's a little more organized and it's starting to get heard. So to watch someone like watch the, the movement grow like that um, and be more understood and be more helpful towards the conversation overall was really, really cool. Um, since then, it's been fairly peaceful. You know, there's pockets of little things that, that spark up, but for the most part, no destruction, and it's been peaceful conversations with people. Does uh, the Sacramento have a history of either police violence or like civil rights related unrest? Like, what's the what's the history there? So Sacramento, uh, yeah, so they do. Um, I wouldn't say that it's um, all the time, but the history of Sacramento is very interesting because. Um, Back in like the uh, early 1900s, Sacramento became uh, a very large pocket for Japanese to come. 
and uh, kind of uh, Sacramento had uh, one of the biggest Japanese populations, um, I believe, in the United States at one point. And Japantown, which kind of doesn't exist in the same place that it did, which is part of the problem, um, was turned into the Capitol, Capitol Mall, which leads up to the, to the steps of oh. the Capitol building. So gentrification, um, they called it, uh, uh, what was it called? I forget, redevelopment. The redevelopment, <laughs> quote unquote, uh, was brought in and, you know, um, whites didn't want the the Japanese business owners and the you know corner stores and the um, you know housing communities. So I do know there's a there's a really really interesting slash kind of quasi fucked up stat, which is before they kind of moved everyone out and kind of restructured the city supposedly. I guess there was like 4,300 Japanese people living in Japantown um, at that point after they uh, kind of redid the Capitol, Capitol Mall corridor, there was only 430. Oh. So, so yes, we have history there and it's not always towards um, black um, or African-American people. It's towards kind of everyone. We have a, a huge Latino community here and uh, yeah, Sacramento's made some interesting decisions that are less, they don't age well and they're, they're less than desirable in terms of, you know, gentrifying places and moving people to other sides of the freeway or things like that and putting them in pockets yeah. that just suck. And when you look back at the history, you really go, man, that was a horror. I can't believe people were behind that kind of decision. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I grew up outside of New Haven Connecticut and New Haven's got its own history with that. And it was, uh, you know, it was urban renewal and New Haven was, uh, sort of like, a I I don't know, formally a test ground, but there was a lot of like, at the time, like leading edge thought about how to transform cities and New Haven was, um, at the sort of forefront of a lot of that. And really what it meant was putting poor people and putting black people in high-rise projects on um, public housing that was urban renewal and then putting a freeway through the middle of the city and, and sort of yep. breaking old neighborhoods and um putting enclosed shopping malls downtown and getting rid of the street level um retail those things where it's hard to believe like you said that those were the vanguard of like modernization thinking at one point in our country's history but they really they hurt cities and they hurt communities. Um, and like in the last 20 or 30 years, you know, all the, all the things about like crime rates going down and community policing, it's all around this idea of like, you want street activity, you want retail that opens up onto the sidewalk and you want mixed use residential and retail. And you want um, different income people uh, living in the same neighborhood, like all these things that, that 50 or 60 years ago were just, considered part of the problem are actually what makes the cities healthy. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. And when you, and when you talk about that, like, you know, putting a, like for us, it's I five, right? I five and it runs up to Seattle. But when I five was, was put in the city, it was a huge, it was a huge thing in the fifties, you know, and, uh, and it divided the city and it pushed people out. And then, you know, you get all these things where, 
you know, for us, putting Capitol Mall in, uh, which is just so you could see line of sight from the river to the to the Capitol. Um, but there's nothing like there's no uh, jazz clubs and there's no uh, laundromats or, you know, corner stores or whatever that are owned by locally, you know, based people or minority groups or anything like that. It just got wrecking balled and it just went away. And now it's like this really cool, nice, beautiful, you know, Instagram photo, you know, (laughs) such a, such a, uh, yeah, such a weird, such a weird, uh, thing that that was progressive at the time, you know, that was how they were going to move. That was how they're going to move the city forward and bring people to the city. Um, but you know, Sacramento is beautiful in a lot of ways. And, and I'm sure this, it resides in every city where people are really proud of where they're, where they come from and all that. Um, and for us, we are, Sacramentans are, are really, really proud of where, of where we're at, how close proximity we are to the Bay Area, how close we are to, you know, Lake Tahoe. But then you look at some of the history and it's like, man, okay. Let's, yeah. Let's see how we can do better this time. What river are you on? What's the waterfront there? Well, there's, there's a couple of rivers, but the American and the Sacramento are the two that um, are the biggest ones. Um, but the Sacramento River runs right through uh, downtown. So mm-hmm. um, the waterfront in Sacramento, which old Sacramento kind of sits on, um, separates uh, downtown from West Sacramento. Gotcha. And is that where you grew up? No, I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, I grew up in Walnut Creek, so East Bay Area. Gotcha. Um, left there when I was 16 and uh, made my way to Sacramento, moved here when I was uh, 18, and have been here ever since, so quite a while. And so when you landed in Sacramento, um, what was there for music? Like, what was there for oh, venue? Like, well, let me say it differently. What was there for an 18-year-old to do in terms of music? Record stores, radio, um, yeah. nightlife? Like, what, what did you step into? Totally. Well, let's see. Uh, so I went there for college, or I came to Sacramento for college. Um, so all my friends and I would go to a couple of different places in Sacramento. First was uh, Crest Theater, which is a historic, iconic theater in the heart of downtown Sacramento. Um, and the big local band to go see at the time uh, was a band called Cake. <laughs> so uh, that was cool. They were from Sacramento. They were getting big. So I think that was my first show that I went to when I moved to Sacramento was Cake at the Crest Theater. And then... Uh, there was the Cattle Club, which was a really cool venue. Um, and at that time, uh, you had, I, I want to say it's like between 500 and 1,000 cap, um, mm-hmm. something like that. But at the time, the bands that were touring through there was like um, Incubus and No Doubt and the Deftones and all that playing club shows. Um, so uh, I didn't go to too many of those, but I, did, I was able to catch a few um, really cool uh, shows there of bands that ended up becoming, you know, arena type shows. But we had a really good local scene of bands. Um, you know, like I mentioned, Deftones was uh, locally based. Um, a band called Far uh, was was pretty good and got some kind of love nationally. Um, Jonah Matrango is their their lead singer. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was like that. Uh, we had a radio station called Quad 106.5, which was really, really awesome uh, for alternative music. Um, and, and when I came up here, that's, I've always been a fan of all types of music, but you know, in the 90s, in the late 90s, I was really into alternative. 
So they played all the stuff I liked, you know, Beck and uh, No Doubt, and, uh, Sublime's uh, stuff at the, at, you know, in the beginning, um, Rage Against the Machine, stuff like that. So to so really that, um, that meat of like post grunge nineties alt rock. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I was in high school for for the grunge stuff, so that was like, that like really shaped me in high school. So continuing that, and I still listen to other stuff too. You know, I listen to hip hop and, um, and you know a little tiny bit of country at that point. But my dad's country, I guess you could say, um, yeah. which was like Roy Orbison, Johnny Cash, that kind of stuff. And then you know I had appreciation for a lot of stuff, but at that point I was really listening to like that was the radio station, that was my station, um, that I was really into. Yeah, that was that was kind of the thing. And other than that, Sacramento was like, at that point, where I lived, so 20 miles outside of city center, um, was kind of sleepy. You know, we had record stores. Uh, you know, Tower was out there. And, uh, this little locally owned one called Dimple Records uh, was there. It was pretty much a replica of Tower, but just locally owned. <laughs> so I would spend a lot of time there in college. I mean, I, I moved up here. I didn't know anyone. Um, the first year or two, you know, I, I had a, a handful of friends, but I spent a lot of time in record stores, a lot of time, like an obscene amount of time, you know, <laughs> buying used CDs and used cassettes. My car still had a cassette player. I was like still on that jam. So, uh, yeah, that was, it was cool. It was cool. I would spend hours in Dimple just looking through the stuff. And so how does the, uh, how does the love and involvement and immersion in music turn into being involved in any kind of hustle in music? Is that much later or did you start screwing around in college? Like how, how did you get exposed to the business side? Yeah. So it was a little bit later. I've always loved music. I've always had a massive appreciation that comes from my parents. Um, my dad was in a couple of bands growing up and in college or, or high school and growing up, you know, my parents had, music playing all the time. There was rarely on the weekends during the day do we ever have the TV on unless it was like football season and we would watch college and pro football. But all the other times, my, par my parents had a, a stereo system in the house um, that would kind of fill the entire house with music and they would play everything from, you know, Cat Stevens to Whitney Houston, Otis Redding, James Taylor, everything. So I kind of grew up with this weird eclectic taste in music. And then, you know, college happened and all that. And I had my first daughter when I was the age I would have been, you know, a junior in college. So that kind of like, I guess, sparked a little something in me where I was like, okay, maybe I could do something with this, but I have no clue where to start. I had no connections to music. You know, my friends liked music and we'd go to shows, but that's it. But what happened is I got divorced early too. I had a kid early, divorced early. Um, and when I got divorced, I was like, I really need to figure out like who I am, what I'm all about. What do I want to do? Like, what do I love? And I literally approached a promoter in town uh, named Eric Rushing. Um, and I said, hey, man, if there's any way I can help you at any time, I was like, just at a show. And I said, if I can help you at any time, let me know. And he goes, yeah, man, I could use your help. Uh, and he goes, uh, you know, give me your number and I'll call you. So I gave him my number. I didn't think I would hear from him. Some, uh, his assistant at the time called me couple of days later and said, Hey, meet me outside, outside of Memorial Auditorium on Saturday at like nine 30 or 10 at night. I'm like, okay, cool. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so I get there, I park, I go there and they hand me this stack, massive stack of flyers to list, you know, list all their upcoming shows. And there she's like, the Deftones show is about to get out. 
and I need these to be all passed out to everyone leaving the show. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> so, I'm in the music business. I'm a pro yeah. guy. Totally. <laughs> 100%. 100%. I'm like, I made it. I remember calling my parents that night or the next day or something and being like, I met this guy. You know, I felt like that scene out of, uh, out of uh, Almost Famous, you know, after the show plays out, he's backstage and he's like, inter, you know, uh, mingling with everyone and saying goodbye to everyone that he had just met that night, you know, but it looked like he had known them forever. Inside jokes with people, all that. It's kind of how I felt at the time. Um, and I was like, man, this is really, really cool. This is my in. Um, and that started a friendship and a, and a relationship with, with Eric um, that still lasts today. Um, so it went from that to having him come in or having me come in to his office at the time and uh, getting stacks of posters that were sent uh, by the agent or management um, where I would have to Sharpie the, the venue, the date, the door time, all that onto those. That transformed into me spending a lot of time in his office and just picking his brain. And uh, I remember having a conversation one day and I said, so I see you're doing all these shows and you've got all this really cool stuff in your office. How do I book bands? Like, how do I put on shows? He really walked me through everything, you know, and then he gave me a date at, uh, at the, uh, the boardwalk in Orangevale, California, uh, right outside of Sacramento. And so I'll give you this date if you think you want to book a show and the rest with my promoter history is, is you know, that was in 2004, I think somewhere around there. And, uh, yeah, I got the bug. I got the bug, you know, so what was the show? Do you remember? Was it anything noteworthy? Uh, it wasn't noteworthy, but I knew, I do know the show. Um, so, uh, there's this band from Sacramento called the study ups. Um, and it was them and this band from Reno called Livets Livets and, uh, the study ups kind of like a uh, rock study, ska, um, reggae ish band, uh, Livets Livets kind of like sublime. Um, but, uh, a lot of punk influence. Um, yeah. And I think the opening band was a band called smoke and they were from my, uh, from Roseville, which is the, the city that I lived in, um, you know, up until a couple of years ago. Was it a good bill? Great bill. It sold out. The show sold out like, which is <laughs> the worst thing for a promoter that does their first show, because yeah. then you think this shit's easy. I could totally do this all the time. I'm going to fucking print money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Little do you know that, you know, six months later, you're robbing your checking account so that you can pay a band out that you told you would give them 40 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever to play. Oh, man. But yeah, de uh, de definitely a dangerous precedent set, but was so much fun. Just yeah. so much fun. So you were an in-house booker, promoter um, there for a while? Uh, independent, but yeah, uh, so I exclusively booked there, uh, at the boardwalk for a while, um, with Eric. So Eric was the, had the exclusive booking rights to the venue. Um, and so he booked all the nationals and I would book all the locals. Um, and then every once in a while I would, I would get a national act that I'd built a rapport with and I'd be able to do a national show there. Um, but for a long time, very long time, uh, the company that I kind of called myself in the moniker was called Sack Shows. And I did shows under that moniker from 2004 until about 2016. And what so I do, 
uh, life, you know, like, uh, I had more kids. I had been married. I am still married. Um, I, I still do like two or three shows a year on my own. I still do a concert series I've been doing for nine years. Um, it's a summer concert series, 12 weeks, um, in a park, it's free. Um, and we have national acts and stuff like that. But, um, in terms of independent, independent promoted shows at venues, like rooms, I haven't done a show since 2016, but yeah, it was just life, you know, like sometimes, uh, you know, I had the bug for a really long, long time and I love putting on shows, but sometimes it's like my priorities just had to change to, uh, you know, my day job, um, you know, and my career and trying to figure out what I want to do. And so did you, uh, so independent promotion is not a day job. It is a day job. I wasn't doing it. I wasn't doing that as a day job. So, um, I was putting on shows for fun, um, after hours. I mean, I'm a workaholic. Like I have to be busy. I have to have something going on. Um, I just feel stagnant. Um, so yeah, while I was doing this stuff in, in like the early 2000s, um, I was also working for, a, for an event communications company. Um, and that was my job. And, um, doing event communications got me, um, interested in trying to see if we, we could work at that job with some music folks. And so I was doing, uh, like I signed, uh, the national contract while I was there, uh, with Bill Graham Presents. Um, which turned into SFX, then Clear Channel, then Live Nation. Um, and I signed a national deal with them because I wanted to work with music. I wanted to have that connection with music. Um, doing all those shows got us other business. Um, and uh, a gentleman um, named Brett Bear came into my life to try and uh, uh, get communications for his tours with his bands, which were Hoobastank and Papa Roach. Um, and I met him. Um, and little did I know it would come full circle with him um, because he's now Eric's partner um, with a, three or four venues um, in Sacramento. So really, really cool thing. But I was, yeah, I was always trying to connect music to my, to my day job, um, doing these events and stuff like that. And doing event communications, I was working with PGA and, you know, WNBA, um, doing stuff with the UFC, conventions, all kinds of stuff like that. But we weren't super tied into music until I got there and I was like, I have to do something that with music or I'm going to burn out real quick. <laughs> um, but I was still putting on shows on the side. I was still hustling. I was still, you know, I'd work there eight to five, get off, you know, and talk to bands or go see shows. I was going to shows like, you know, depending on when I had my daughter at the time, I was going to shows like three, four nights a week. Mm -hmm. And what's, what's event communications mean? Uh, two-way radios and repeater systems and uh, basically uh, cell phone uh, stuff back in the day with like Nextel phones. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, like a lot of these, uh, perfect example, like the security for the Raiders, right? Like they're a security company. They don't own their entire radio system, but they rent one uh, for an entire season so that they are able to communicate while they're in the stadium. And so I was doing business development and project management and client services and all that for uh, the company that I worked for. And we would go and set up temporary communication systems for these folks. So like wow. Bill Graham presents and, and all of them, you know, they were doing amphitheater shows. So Shoreline Amphitheater, Concord Pavilion, and up here 
uh, sleep train. And we would go and set them up at the beginning of the season and, you know, give them a boatload of radios so they could run the operations. And then we'd take them back to the end of the season. And that way they didn't have to maintain or own them for the rest of the year and worry about, you know, all the stuff that comes along with it. Did you always get as many back as you issued? No. <laughs> That's the hustle. That's the hustle. That's how those guys make money. It's like, oh yeah, here's a, here's a radio. It costs 350 bucks, but if you lose it, we're going to charge you a grand. You know? <laughs> now we can't back soaked in a solo cup full of beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it was an interesting, it was an interesting job. Um, but, you know, wasn't, wasn't as fulfilling uh, as, as the other stuff that I've done. Yeah. So keep me going on that path. So you're, you're basically, um, you've got sort of your day gig that you're trying to pull music into and you've got your music gig at night that you're, you know, really like learning deeply how the, how the moving parts of the business work. Uh, those things are happening in parallel over some sort of time. And I would imagine those lines have to start blurring in terms of now you have a whole spectrum of capability from front of house, back of house, um, deals. Um, where does all that lead? Yeah. So I did that for nine years. It did start blurring. You know, um, I was learning a lot about production because of the communication stuff. You know, I'd go set up these things and these systems and stuff. And I would be working with the director of operations or the production manager or whatever. And I would be looped into conversations and, and things to just, like you said, learn everything, learn the front of house, back of house, um, you know, talent buying uh, from stuff I was doing at night, client relations, everything. So I felt pretty well-rounded. Um, and uh, after nine years, uh, I did uh, outside lands is uh, year one. Um, was kind of year eight or nine for me um, at that company. And I just wrapped up Outside Lands and I was stoked. And I was driving back from San Francisco and stopped off the office. And, and I got laid off that day. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like shocked. Didn't see it coming. Nothing. Just, hey, we're kind of reorganizing, restructuring the business. And uh, yeah, and you got to go. And so I was shocked. Um, totally uh, caught me out of the blue, but probably one of the best things that's happened because with that layoff, first of all, it gave me a minute to kind of like recalibrate and understand, was I really super happy doing what I was doing or, you know, is there some, some direction I'd rather go? Um, interestingly enough, side note, uh, I met my, my, who is now my wife. Um, we hung out for the first time that night. So really shitty scenario but really great you know scenario in the end i left that job being laid off and took a couple of weeks to try and figure out what i was going to do um and the first thing that popped into my head was i need to go back to college and i need to go back to college because i left college um when my girlfriend at the time had gotten pregnant with my oldest daughter and i never finished and i wanted to finish what i had been working on <laughs> my first round in college i was a geology major so you know, study, <laughs> studying a different kind of rock. Um, but yeah, then uh, I decided I'm going to go back, but I want to get my, my degree in uh, graphic design. And uh, the, my reasoning behind that was because I'm doing shows all the time and I can't design my own posters. <laughs> You're taking out a cost center. 
<laughs> exactly. So that was, uh, that was my reasoning. And so um, I told my parents, I'm not going back to work. I'm going to go uh, do this. And I, you know, luckily with the help of who is now my wife was my girlfriend um, or the girl I was hanging out with at that time. Um, she supported the hell out of me and the, I went back to school and I went back to school for uh, almost two years. So a year and a half. Um, it sounds like you got, were a catch. <laughs> the, yeah, I know the unemployed right? guy with a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I tell, uh, yeah, I, I tell, uh, people that all the time. It's like kind of my thing. I'm like, Hey, you know, like she thought I was pretty good. I, you know, divorced, unemployed guy with a kid. Uh, you know, um, I'm not, I'm kind of going into, you know, my early thirties at that point, And I'm like, you know, I yikes. Yeah. She's so, a keeper. That's a keeper. Yeah, right no, there. she was, she was awesome and, and still is and supports all of my crazy ass ideas. But yeah, so I went back to school for a couple of years and, and I was doing shows, you know, while I was in school, just so I could make some, some extra money um, uh, while getting grants and, you know, all that kind of stuff to, to put myself through school. And uh, when that ended, um, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go try and find a graphic design job. Um, and what happened was, uh, so let's see, my school ended in like December and I'd been kind of looking at jobs and things like that, but they were like going to work for Comcast or for, you know, like some grocery store doing ads. And it was like, not what I was about. I wasn't passionate about that. So I went to a Christmas party invited by my friend, Eric, um, to this Christmas party at a venue that hadn't opened up yet. Um, that had been a nightclub venue for years that had just rolled over and rolled over and rolled over and never really been anything of note. Um, but he bought the building and had a Christmas party there. Um, and it would become this venue, Ace of Spades. And at the Christmas party, there were a bunch of folks that were working in the music industry, um, locally in Sacramento and had these startups that were doing really, really well and doing really interesting things surrounding fan clubs and, um, you know, digital offerings like websites and apps. And I got talking with uh, one of the guys there, um, a guy named Greg Patterson. And he said, what are you doing now? Side note, I'd put on a, uh, a local music award show that had been highly successful as part of my oh. promoting thing, like a year before, trying to compete with one that had been in town for a while, but was kind of like a little bit of a joke in a lot of our eyes. So I tried to redo it, tried to revamp it. I did a couple of them. And, uh, and I had met some people in that circle who helped us out. So I got talking with him and he said, what are you doing now? Um, and I said, nothing, I'm looking for a job. I just finished school and I need to do something, but I want to work in music. And he said, I'm going to call you after the new year. And I said, okay, sounds good. So, uh, after the new year, he called me and they said, we think we have a perfect job for you. Um, it would be project managing, um, ticketing and the digital solutions for uh, a music festival in Austin, Texas called Fun, Fun, Fun Fest. And I was like, this sounds like too good to be true. Like this sounds amazing. And uh, I went and met with them and accepted the job. And uh, the company was called Ground Control, um, which is now called Wonderful Union um, and owned by William Morris Endeavor. But at the time it was like 30 scrappy people um, who love music and were doing really, really cool stuff. So I project managed that, uh, that music festival, which dumped me into a world that, um, 
would literally change the trajectory of my life. Um, just that, um, that one job acceptance. Um, I was, I was managing fun, fun, fun fest, but I was also, um, given a client book or given a book of business that include clients like ACL live and, uh, ACL TV and got to meet those folks also, uh, overseeing venues that were on their platform, uh, like Mohawk in Austin, Texas, and working with other music festivals, uh, down in Southern California. Um, and their, their, uh, their business also included a lot of artists and I didn't do anything with artists at first. Then we went through a little bit of a change in the organization and then I, I took on um, about 15 artists um, at that time as well. So like Deftones, um, Nas, the rapper Nas, um, Leanne Rimes, um, Toto, hmm. uh, John, John Fogarty, um, and, and NDRE, a couple of other couple of other bands that were like along the metal lines of metal and stuff like that. But I started seeing a world that I had not seen before. So I had been a promoter and I'd seen the production and all that kind of stuff. And now I was being exposed to the artist side of things, um, which was eye opening and tough, but really, really rewarding because I was building relationships with managers and agents and, and, and a lot of times artists as well um, and became friends with them, became friendly with them. So that was really, really cool. And that changed everything for me. I was happy. I was so excited to wake up every morning and go to work. Um, and I hadn't ever felt like that before. So, um, yeah, I was doing that. And then I was still doing shows at night. <laughs> so um, that was cool. And I did that for like two years or three years. Um, and then uh, we were using an internal tool to manage some of the music festivals that we were doing. One day I had a conversation with a couple of guys uh, that were the owners and, and founders of the company. And they made a comment about how they wondered if, if uh, the tool would be useful um, for people outside of our organization. And if it would be, if we thought that we might be able to package it, something package it as something that we could sell. Mm. Um, and so I got looped in to that project and internally was kind of heading that project with a couple of the other seniors um, that were there and people like, um, you know, the vice presidents and, and founders of the company. Um, and, you know, about a year later, we started a company called Q, which is a venue management ticketing company. Um, so that was another little divergent from, <laughs> from the original reason why I worked there, but it was really, really interesting and really cool. And was essentially Q was sort of like enterprise software to manage a venue's business. Could you, can you say it better than I just did? Um, yes. So yes <laughs> and no. So it was, uh, so basically, you know, when, a as a promoter, I knew that there were a ton of things that sucked about putting on shows. Um, and we had a bunch of friends that shared the same, uh, pain points and things like that. So what we knew sucked was that, uh, we used like five different pieces of software to manage one show. You know, you had like your Google calendar and your Dropbox and your, you know, ticketing system and, you know, internally your scanning system and, you know, will call and all this kind of stuff. And it, they were all disjointed and none of them talked. So we wanted to build something that was all inclusive into one product. 
um, and with a goal of a couple things, either be so disruptive and piss so many people off that we just start gaining a bunch of business because um, when I say pissing people off, I mean like pissing ticketing companies off or people who had similar products by stealing their clients and becoming sustainable, a sustainable startup or become so disruptive that they say, screw these guys, we're going to buy them because they're doing a bunch of stuff we've never done before and we can't do. So that's kind of, that was our business model um, was just to be scrappy, young. There were 10 of us. We weren't like some gargantuan big thing. We were a bunch of people. We basically pulled about eight people from the come from ground control over to us and uh, over to Q and created something cool. And I got most of our ideas um, in the alley behind our office building, smoking cigarettes. <laughs> and how it built. That's amazing. And so which, which way did the strategy play out? Did you get so big and annoying that you stole everybody's clients or did somebody come swoop you up? Both. So at first it was, we started swooping clients and we started getting noticed by people like Eventbrite and Ticketfly and um, some of the younger, more uh, nimble uh, ticketing companies. So we stole a bunch of their clients and then what happened is they got wise and they kind of stole them back. <laughs> so they, um, you know, they got a couple of our venues and they got one of our festivals um, back. And then we started having conversations with, uh, you know, bigger companies that were interested in acquiring us. So yeah. um, what ended up happening is in 2016, February of 2016, uh, Eventbrite acquired Q and we folded into the Eventbrite team, which was another huge eye opener in my, in my business life. Um, seeing how a multi-billion dollar company um, runs things in the music industry, which they didn't really have a present in music, presence in music at that point. They just were focused on, you know, Tough Mudder and, you know, film festivals and all the yoga retreats and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And was the notion that you guys were going to be their entree into music before the ticket fly acquisition? Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was what we were told when we got brought in was you guys are our music people. And they would make jokes like, oh, yeah, we know that's the music team because they all wear black. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> cool. And like, we all have beards, right? So that was like the thing. It's like, we were the music team. Um, yeah, <laughs> so we were, there for, we were there for almost two years um, before the uh, Ticket Fly acquisition happened. And then, mm -hmm. um, and then everything changed. And so what was, um, was it called Eventbrite Music at that point? Like, what, was the, what did you operate under? No. Or was it just Eventbrite? No. It was just a bump, right? Yeah, we, we at that time, um, you know, weren't operating separately from the rest of the company. And it was fun. You know, we, we had a music team um, per se, but we, we weren't separated um, from the rest of the company by like the, you know, by business model or whatever. Yeah. Fast forward maybe a little bit. Just take me to the end of your, uh, your event bright run. What was the, what was the trajectory there? Were you there through the IPO or? Yep. Yeah. So, um, so when I was, when I, so when I left or not left Q, but when a Q was acquired by Eventbrite, um, I came in and did music account strategy, which basically meant that I handled anything like contractual financial or um, things that needed to be escalated, you know, from some of these key account clients. Um, so I had a book of business that I worked with account managers on and we kind of tag team and uh, so I did that uh, up until the Ticketfly acquisition. And then uh, the Ticketfly acquisition happened and I moved into a, 
into a team lead role where I led the venues team for the Western states. Wow. I led that team, led that team through IPO. And then, uh, then I got caught up in the first round of uh, kind of layoffs with the whole situation. So uh, Andrew Dreskin allowed, uh, announced his uh, departure from the company. Um, I was laid off the next day. Um, and then, you know, I think about 20 or 30 other people were laid off in the following months or two months. Um, yeah. And then I, then I went on summer break. <laughs> Very well timed. Very well timed. And, yeah. uh, and, and how did you come to know light? I knew light, uh, at Eventbrite because it was an integrated part of, of the Eventbrite offering. Um, so I had people at Ticketfly that were on my team, um, you know, spoke very highly of light. Um, I knew it as an offering that we, uh, you know, would oftentimes talk to clients about. I didn't know the impact that light was having. I was a little clueless to that. Um, but I, you know, FlyCon, I had met uh, a couple of uh, the people like Anastasia at FlyCon. But yeah, I, I honestly, you know, I knew about light, but I, I didn't know about light, I guess you could say. I wasn't super, yeah. super savvy on like the operational aspects of it or even like, you know, the total value props of everything. And as you, as you dug into the company and got to learn about it more, um, like what was it, what sealed the deal for you? Like what was the, what's the thing that you, that you really gravitate towards? Yeah, well, the interesting thing was, so I, when I left Eventbrite, I talked to a bunch of people in the industry just to get their kind of idea of people who knew me, where, where they saw me, like where they saw my strengths, you know, where could I go after this? I, don't, I knew I didn't really want to be in primary ticketing. I loved the venue management part of Q. Um, I loved the relationship building um, that I had with strategy and with the uh, you know team lead stuff. But I knew that I didn't really want to be in primary ticketing. So uh, I reached out to a bunch of people in the industry and I, I ended up having a really, really awesome conversation with Chris Donahue from C-Tickets. And he said, why don't you look at uh, companies that are like third party, um, you know, plugins for primary ticketing. Like what about a light or lend or, um, you know, MailChimp or ToneDen or, you know, one of those things that plug into primary ticketing, but isn't really ticketing. Um, and when he said light, I was like, Oh yeah, light. And, uh, <laughs> I remember going to the website. I immediately saw the position that I have now available. Um, and I think that same day is when I DM'd you on LinkedIn and was like, Hey, <laughs> you know, what's up? Wow. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then what sold me on it was, um, Ant's passion. Yeah. I mean, the product, the, the product speaks for itself and the need is so there that you don't have to spend a lot of time in the industry to understand the things that light is tackling that have been issues for, you know, decades. Um, well, Ant's passion. Um, when I, when I went into San Francisco and talked to the team, talking to Ant, I was like, man, this is where I need to be. This is where it's, this is where I need to go. Um, 
so yeah. And then, you know, here I am. <laughs> and so, um, you know, through the different, uh, through the different twists and turns that you've taken, um, from putting on shows or, or actually from passing out flyers to, um, to helping, to helping venues and stuff now, um, like what, what gets you, like what really gets you going? What gets you jazzed about the music business? Not necessarily about your current role, though it could be, but like what's the, what's your area of impact? You know what I mean? Like how do you view, when you're at your best, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, relationship building is really like the thing I love to do. And it's not just relationship building. It seems like a very cliche thing to say like, Oh, I love the relationship building. Um, because I do client services or, you know, whatever. Um, it's not even just with clients. Um, there's a relationship that happens between everybody who works in the music industry and the fans too. Um, so, you know, I was, I was the kid who, made mixtapes, not for like the girls that I liked, but for like all my buddies, you know, I was trying to expose them to all the shit that I was finding. Um, I would make mixtapes for myself to remember things like remember artists that I, that really, really, you know, got my heart racing and really made me super stoked. Um, so I believe that there is that relationship as well. So whether it's putting on a show and standing in the back of the room and looking over the crowd and these people are going crazy, you know, whether it's a hip hop show and they're super into it and super, you know, excited about what the, uh, you know, the MC saying all the way to, you know, metal shows where people are crowd surfing and stage diving and all that. Just looking back and seeing that is super. Um, yeah, it just gets you, you know, it's a, it's a drug. It really is a drug. I stopped doing drugs, um, you know, in, like 2001 um intentionally um and uh i had to find something to replace that feeling <laughs> and putting on shows talking and, and generally you know talking with like you know venue owners or festival owners or putting on my own festival i, I own a mu or owned a music festival until last year um called soul bloom and being able to see you know six seven thousand people um, you know, jumping up and down, seeing their favorite artist, um, or just being impacted in a certain way. Um, just completely worth it. Worth every blood, sweat, tear, panic attack, you know, whatever. It's all worth it. What, um, were you holding any tickets, uh, when the pandemic hit? I was. Yep. Uh, so I had plans to go see, uh, Doomtree which is, uh, you know, a hip hop collective that I really, really enjoy. Um, and I want really wanted, I didn't, wasn't holding tickets yet, but I was, uh, really interested in going to see, uh, the rage against machine machine tour. Um, I thought there might be an opportunity for me to see them at, at Coachella. Um, so I was like holding out that hope. But, you know, the Raging is Machine stuff um, and having Run the Jewels uh, open for them would, is like, would have been the most amazing thing. So I was kind That's of like... It's the show hey. of the year. It's the show of the year. Whatever year it plays, it's the show of the year. Yeah, 100%. And I saw Raging Against Machine in the, in the 90s um, at Tibetan Freedom Concert. And that was, man, 
you, yeah, I, I remember how impactful they were then. And uh, now, holy shit, holy shit, man, it's, yeah, I, I actually tweeted something the other day. It's like, uh, it was a live, live uh, set by uh, Rage Against the Machine from 1995. And I, I just wrote, if this, if this were to happen today, it would be fucking insane, <laughs> which is true. It's needed, you know? Yeah, it's needed. It was so timely. So time. Um, well, thank you. Thanks for making time to do this, man. Yeah. Thanks for uh, having me on and allowing me to, you know, talk a lot. <laughs> That's why you're here, man. That's why you're here. Thank you so much, Angeline, Justin, Aunt Taylor, and everyone at Light. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Remember that Spotlight On is available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can snatch a podcast from. Spotlight On is produced and edited by Craig Snyder. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit light.com. That's L-Y-T-E dot com. Keep your feedback coming directly to me. You can reach me at LP at light.com. Thank you so much for listening. Be safe and please stay in touch.